for he said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. This is the word of the Lord. I'd like to invite up Miriam now, who's going to talk for us this evening. Uh, dear Lord, thank you that we can gather here tonight um, reminisce and reflect on the meaning of Advent. And I pray that you will speak through Miriam tonight and open our hearts to hear what you have to say. Amen. Thanks, Patrick. What a story. In previous weeks, we've heard of a couple of angelic visits. First, the visit of the angel to Mary, and then the visit of the angel to Joseph, and then perhaps the visit of the angel to Zachariah. And so now we come to Mary, who goes with haste, almost immediately after the angel's proclamation, to stay with her cousin Elizabeth. So why does she take this trip? Perhaps it's to escape the judgment of her neighbours being pregnant before marriage in a country town has its challenges, I'd imagine. Perhaps it's to be with Elizabeth in her own pregnancy, who is by this time six months pregnant. Either way, Mary finds in Elizabeth a kindred spirit, despite being far apart in age and stage of life and marriage status and employment. They're united by both being pregnant after an angelic appearance and in a miraculous way. And Elizabeth herself was in seclusion for the duration of her pregnancy. With Elizabeth, Mary could share her experiences, her faith, and perhaps even her fears. As Matthew Henry says in his commentary... There it is. Um, It is so good and beneficial and comforting for those who have a good work of grace begun in their souls to consult those who are in the same situation. They will find that, as in water, face reflects face, so does the heart of man or woman, that of man or woman, that of Christian to Christian. Mary greets Elizabeth, and Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, proclaiming truth over Mary and a blessing and announcing the recognition of Mary's tiny in utero Jesus by his cousin still unborn, John. What a beautiful foreshadowing of John's proclamation of his cousin Messiah. And how deeply must Mary have felt this welcome as she prepared for the coming months and years ahead and as she could now confirm that the angel's words to Elizabeth, were true and trustworthy, and she could be encouraged in his prophecy to her. See, God is asking a huge thing of Mary, but he is not leaving her to face it alone. Instead, he gives her Joseph and Elizabeth, and though silent, Zachariah, and in time for her and also for her son, he gives John the Baptist and others. 
God surrounds Mary and Elizabeth with safety and encouragement for the next three months. And she goes home shortly before Elizabeth gives birth. God is asking a huge thing of Mary. But again, he is not leaving her to face it alone. So too, then, is the role of the church. In accepting Christ, we step into the beautiful and often painful and challenging life of the Christian. But God doesn't call us to face hardship alone. We are called to witness to each other about the truth of God's word, about his goodness, and about his character. How have you done this for someone in the last week or two? How has someone else blessed you by speaking to you about the goodness of God? So in relief and praise, as she arrives to this welcome, Mary breaks into song. My soul magnifies, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Saviour. The story of God's faithfulness is filled with songs. So it's perhaps appropriate that today is a carol service. Mary's song is the first of three hymns in Luke chapters 1 to 2. And we have the Latin names for them, which is, I think, just lots of fun. First, there's the Magnificat from the word magnifies. My soul magnifies the Lord as Mary sings. And then we have the Benedictus, meaning blessing, which is Zachariah's blessing, his first ability to speak in nine months. And this is what he comes out with, a blessing to God to praise him for the birth of his son. And finally, in uh, Luke chapter 2, 29, we have the Nunc Dimittis, which is just fun to say, when Simeon rejoices in the fulfilling of God's prophecies and promises in the temple. Some even include Elizabeth's welcome to Mary in verse 42 as a poetic hymn. And Mary's son is also reminiscent of old hymns from the, New, from the Old Testament, including Psalm 103, and in particular Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2. When God gives Hannah a son, and then she devotes him to life serving God in the temple, she breaks out in song as well. Mary is speaking with a knowledge of her scriptures, and now seeing herself in the long story of God's care for his people, and hearing the voices of her foremothers. Like Hannah, she has been given a child by God's particular intervention. And like Hannah, Mary has had a deep prayer answer, that of God's promise to send his Messiah to Israel. They both praise God for his faithfulness to his people and his mercy to themselves. And they both reflect repeatedly on the scattering of the proud or the breaking of the bows of the mighty. They both rejoice in the filling of the hungry and the rejection of the full or the rich. And they both celebrate the raising up of the poor, from the dust, those of humble estate. My soul magnifies, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Saviour. Mary, with her Magnificat, joins in the history of her people, in singing to praise and remember the goodness and the character of God. How are we remembering that goodness and that character of God? And we sing today still, which is so important, but in the church we don't just sing because we like the sound of music, though that's definitely it. We sing because music impacts our hearts and informs our theology in a way that theological texts and historical books and, dare I say, even sermons just don't. We need songs to imprint on our minds. But what other things are imprinting on our minds? 
What is social media doing? What is entertainment? What are our conversations with our communities doing? What narratives are informing our identity? And what other ways can we use to remember and identify ourselves in the big picture of God's salvation story? Mary rejoices not because she has earned this blessing. Mary is deeply aware of her humble estate. As a very young single woman in a highly hierarchical society from the scorned town of Nazareth in the Roman-occupied state of Israel, what's a modern comparison? Maybe it's a teen in a refugee camp in Kenya who has been invited to bear the Son of God. Or perhaps a 15-year-old Ukrainian girl in the Russian-occupied region of the Donbass, visited by an angel. My soul magnifies, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. Mary is not only aware of her own humble estate, but the vulnerability of her people. Her blessing is not a prize for being a faithful follower of Christ, of God rather, uh, but an answer to the cries of her people and the fulfilment of God's plan. The whole nation of Israel longs for this day, and here is a faithful, ordinary girl who is invited to bear the hope God gives his people. She is invited into a hard task. And when I look at the story of Mary, I'm sometimes tempted to see her as an object of sorrow, perhaps even of pity. She's a teenage mum living with all the gossip of a small country town, especially when she tells people it was the Holy Spirit who got her pregnant. She is obedient to God, but is rewarded with having to flee her home and to live as a refugee in another country to save the life of her child. Did she ever regret saying yes to God? Was this too much to put on the shoulders of a 15 or a 16-year-old girl? Was God being unfair in his request of her? But perhaps in asking these questions, I'm ignoring Mary's very own words. While it's good to recognise the weight of God's call on her life and on ours, we never get a sense of Mary regretting or grieving over his invitation to her. Instead, she is confident of a very different response. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. Despite the societal scorn and the great pressures of what she is about to do, Mary is not resentful or fearful or ashamed. Mary has thrown her life open to God to use, and he has done so. Mary wasn't in denial about the challenges she would face, but she knew the hope growing in her womb. Sometimes the culture of Christmas can make us feel like we have to pretend to be happy. It is the season to be jolly, right? the season of joy. But suffering is not cancelled out by joy. Rather, suffering makes joy more important, more needed. Suffering makes joy necessary, desperately necessary. Mary, walking in the history of Israel, would have been under no illusion of the suffering of her people and of the significance of what was being asked of her. But this hope growing in her womb was not in denial of that suffering, it was an answer to it. And it was such great hope that it overflowed in song, this magnificat of joy. Here, Mary knows, is the great hope, the great healing of her people and of all peoples. She is not an object of pity and she wants no pity. 
She celebrates the blessing given to her and to the whole world. Do we respond to hope in the same way? We too carry in our hearts, in our beings, the spirit of the living God who is the greatest hope. And this hope doesn't minimise suffering, it answers it. Do we allow this hope to overflow in joy? Mary was not commanded to sing a song or forced to overflow with joy. Instead, her joy came from an abundance, from a deep knowledge of the character and goodness of God. Do we allow our hope to overflow in joy? Do we revel in our knowledge of the character and goodness of God? Recently, a friend who spent most of the last few years overseas told me that when she came back to Australia, one of the biggest changes she noticed was a growing, pervading culture of cynicism amongst everyone she spoke to. And perhaps this isn't surprising. It's been a pretty painful couple of years uh, for most people, and, and Australia included. And cynicism is, after all, a protective response to being hurt, to grieving dreams unmet by denying that there was ever hope or dreams at all. The story of Christmas doesn't negate that pain or minimise it. It answers it. The hope of Christ answers suffering. We will still grapple with the weight of a fallen world, but we are not left to grapple alone or in hopelessness. We are given an open conversation with Christ and a hope in him. And when we give that hope its rightful place in guiding our hearts and minds, when we recognise in it the answer to our hurts, then it can melt that protective armour of cynicism which denies hope and instead it can become an overflow of thanksgiving, a magnificat. What does the coming of Christ mean to you? To your fears and to your sorrows? to your people, your family, your work, your friends, your enemies? What answer does this hope give to them? If Christ is not relevant in suffering, he is not relevant at all. What answer does this hope give to them, to the suffering in your life or theirs? What does it look look like for hope to overflow in your life? And in mine, my soul magnifies, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my saviour. Amen.